Section six of Le Petit Nord. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Le Petit Nord by Anne Grenfell and Katie Spaulding. Section six. March ten. The seals are in. That to you, doubtless, does not seem the most engrossing item of news that could be communicated, but that merely proves what a long road you have to travel. Before the break of day, every man capable of carrying a weapon is out on the ice to try and get his share of the spoils. They carry every conceivable sort of gun, but the six-foot muzzle-loaders are the favorites. These ancient weapons have been handed down from father to son for generations, and locally go by the somewhat misleading sobriquet of the Little Darlants. The people call the seals swiles. There is an old story about a foreigner who once asked, How do you spell swile? The answer the fisherman gave him was, We don't spell em, carry em. We mostly hauls em. Seabirds have also come in the swatches of open water between the pans. A gale of wind and sea has broken up the ice and driven it out of St. Mean's Bay, which is just around the corner from us. Thousands of tur are there, and the men are reaping many a banquet. A man's wealth is now gauged by the number of birds which are strung around the eaves of his house. It is a safe spot, for it keeps the birds thoroughly frozen, and well out of reach at this time of year of the ever-present dog. Some of the men were prevented from being on the spot for bird-shooting as promptly as they desired by the fact that their boats, having lain up all winter, were not plimmed. If you put a dried apple, for instance, into water, it plims. So do beans, and so do boats. When a boat is not plimmed, it leaks in all its seams, and is therefore looked upon as unsafe for these subarctic waters by the more conservative amongst us. To stop a boat leaking, you chinch the seams with oakum. Our fisherman sexton has just told me that the church was right chinched last night. One by one our supplies are giving out or diminishing. Each week as I send down an order to the store, it is returned with some item crossed off. These articles at home would be considered the indispensables. Already potatoes have gone the way of all flesh. There is no more butter, though that is less lost than it sounds, for it was packed on the schooner directly next to the kerosene barrels, and a liberal quantity of that volatile liquid incorporated itself in each tub of oleo. We are warned that the remaining amount of flour will not hold out till the spring boat, our first possible chance of getting reinforcements for our larder, unless we exercise the watchfulness of the Sphinx. The year before I came the first boat did not reach St. Antoine till the 28th of June. More excitement has just been communicated to me by Topsy, much more. A man from the Baie de Francais has killed a huge polar bear. It took ten men and six dogs to haul the beast home after he had been finally dispatched. The man fired several shots at him, but did not hit a vital spot. One bullet only remained to him, and the bear was coming at him in a very purposeful manner. Now or never, thought the fisherman, and fired. The creature fell dead almost at his feet. When they skinned him they found bullets in his legs and flank, but searched and searched in vain for the fatal one which had been the end of him. There was no mark on the skin in any vital spot. At last they found it. The ball had penetrated exactly through the bear's ear into his brain. All the countryside is now dining off bear steak, and there is a splendid skin to be purchased, if you are so minded. I have eaten a bit of the steak, though I confess I did not sit down to the feast with any pleasurable anticipation, as the men said that they found the remains of a recently devoured seal in Bruin's tum. I had an agreeable surprise. The meat was fibrous and a little tough, but it was quite good a vast improvement on the seabirds which are so highly valued in the local commissariat. The prophet has a vivid idea of the processes going on in the heads of animals. He says that up to fifteen years ago there were bears innumerable in the country. 
"'And one day, miss,' he explained, "'the whole crew of them gets their anchors and leaves in a body.' To hear him one would imagine that at a concerted signal the bears came out of their burrows and shook the dust of the land from their feet. The Eskimos told the seals. They lie on the ice and wave their legs in the air, and the seals, curious animals, approach to discover the nature of the phenomenon, and are forthwith dispatched. One Eskimo of a histrionic temperament decided to go one better. He went out to the ice edge, climbed into his sealskin sleeping bag, and waved his legs, as per stage directions. We are not informed whether the device would have proved a successful decoy to the seals, for before any had been lured within range, another Inuit, having seen the sealskin legs gesticulating on the ice edge, naturally mistook them for the real thing, fired with regrettable accuracy, and went out to find a dead cousin. The story is the only deterrent I have from dressing in my white Russian hareskin coat, and sitting in the graveyard some dusky evening. The people claim that the place is haunted. I have never met a yoho, and never expect to, but I would dearly love to see how others act when they think they have. Only the suspicion that they would plump for safety, and fire the inevitable muzzle-loader at my white garment, keeps me from making the experiment in corpore vile. The birds and the seals and the bears and white foxes coming south on the moving ice are signs of spring. There is a stir in the air, as if the people as well sensed that the back of the long winter was broken. How it has flown! You cannot fancy my sensations of lonesomeness when I think that I shall never spend another in this country. You cannot describe or analyze the lure of the land and its people, but it is there and grips you. I have grown to love it, and you will welcome home an uncomplimentary homesick comrade when September comes. April 1. Last minute of Sunday, so here's to you. Tomorrow I shall be cheerfully immersed up to the eyes in work. Oh, this home! How little it deserves the name! Our English storms are nothing but babies compared with the appalling blasts which sweep down upon us from the north. In summer the furious seas dash against the cliffs as if to protect them from the desecration of human encroachment. The fine snow filters in between the roof and ceiling of this building, and in a mild, such as we are now experiencing, it melts, and endless little rivulets trickle down in nearly every room. The water comes in on my bed, on the kitchen range, and on the dining-room table, it falls on the sewing-machine in one room, on the piano and bookcase in another. Its catholicity of taste is plain disheartening. You ask whether these kiddies have the stuff in them to repay what you were pleased to term such an outlay of effort. My emphatic yes should have been so insistent as to have reached you by telepathy when the doubt first presented itself. The home has been established now long enough to have some of its graduates go out into life, and the splendid manhood and womanhood of these young people are at once a sufficient reward to us and a silencing response to you. Many of them have been sent to the States and Canada for further education, and are now not only writing a successful story for themselves, but helping their less fortunate neighbors, in a way we from the outside never can, to turn over many a new leaf in their books. Yesterday I attended the theatre, only it was the operating theatre. The patient on this occasion was a doll, the surgeon a lad of seven, himself a victim of infantile paralysis and the head nurse assisting was age nine and wears a brace on each leg. The stage was the children's ward of the hospital. Here are several pathetic little people, orthopedic cases, brought in for treatment during the winter, and who must stay till the spring boat arrives, as their homes are now cut off by interminable miles of snow wastes and icy sea. Nothing escapes their notice. They tear up their Christmas picture books, and when charged with the enormity of their offense explain that they must have adhesive tape for their operative work. 
Dick, the surgeon, was overheard the other day telling Margaret, the head nurse, as together they amputated the legs of her doll, this is the way Sir Robert Jones does it. Next to operating, the children love music, and they love it with a repertoire varied to meet every mood, from keep the home fires burning to in the courts of Belshazzar and a hundred of his lords. One three-year-old scrap comes from a Salvation Army household, and listens to all such melodies with marked disapproval. But when the others finish, she pipes up, shutting her eyes, clapping her hands, and swaying back and forth. Babies left the cradle for the golden shore. Now he floats, now he floats, happy as before. Three of the kiddies are Roman Catholics, and have taught their companions to say their prayers properly of an evening. They all cross themselves devoutly at the close, but this instruction has fallen on fallow ground in the wee three-year-old. She sits with eyes tightly screwed together, lest she be forced even to witness such heresy and schism. Yesterday I was walking with Gabriel when we came upon a tiny bird essaying his first spring song on a treetop nearby. Gabriel looked at the newcomer silently for several minutes, and finally, turning his luminous brown eyes up to my face, asked, Do we sing hymns, teacher? April 19. The village sale was held last week. This has become an annual occurrence, and the proceeds are devoted to varying good objects. This time the hospital was the beneficiary. For months the countryside, men and women, have been making articles, and I can assure you it is a relief to have it over and such a success to boot, and life's quiet tone restored. We made large numbers of purchases, and consumed unbelievable quantities of more than solid nourishment. The people have shown the greatest ingenuity and diligence, and the display was a credit to their talent. I was particularly struck with the really clever carving representing local scenes which the fishermen had done, with no other tools than their jackknives. The auction was the keynote of the evening, due largely to the signal ability of the auctioneer. His methods are effective, but strictly his own. Cakes, made generally in graded layers and liberally coated with different colored sugar, were the favorites. As he held up the last teetering mountain, he bawled, "'What am I bid for this wonderful cake? Tis a bargain at any price. Why, she's so heavy I can't hold her with one hand.' It fetched seven dollars. The yearly meet for sports was held in the afternoon before the sale and was voted by all to be a great success. It is a far cry from the days when games were introduced here by the mission. Then the people's lives were so drab, and they had little idea of the sporting qualities which every Englishman values so highly. In those early days, if in a game of football one side kicked a goal, they had to wait until the other had done the same before the game could proceed, or the play would have been turned into a battle. Now everything in trousers in the place can be seen of an evening out on the harbor ice kicking a ball about. The harbor is our very roomy athletic field. Twenty-two teams had entered for the dog race, and the start, when the whole number were ranged up in the line, was pandemonium unloosed. The dogs were barking out threatenings and slaughter to the teams next to them. Their masters were shouting unheeded words of command. The crowd were cheering their favorites, and altogether you would never have guessed from the racket and confusion that you were north of the roaring forties. The last event on the sports program was a scramble for colored candies by all the children of the village. Our flock from the home participated. The proceeding was as unhygienic as it was alluring, and our surprise was great when a universally healthy household greeted the morrow morn. When I heard the amount the poor folk had raised for charity out of their meager pittance, I felt reproached. It is a consistent fact here that the people give and do more than their means justify, and it must involve a hard pinch for them in some other quarter. Coming from the sale at ten at night, I looked for our yo-ho in passing the churchyard, but was unrewarded. 
though some of the harbour people assured me in the morning that they had seen it plainly. Can there be anything in the current belief that the men of the sea are more psychic than we case-hardened products of civilization, or is it merely superstition? There is a story here of a man called Galton, which is vouched for by all the older men who can recall the incident. It seems that in Savage Cove this old George Galton lived till he was ninety. He died on December 4, 1883. On the sixteenth he appeared in the flesh to a former acquaintance at Portachois, fifty miles from the spot at which he had died. This man Shenix gives the following account of the curious visitation. I was in the woods cutting timber for a day and a half. During the whole of that time I was sure I heard footsteps near me in the snow, although I could see nothing. On the evening of the second day, in consequence of heavy rain, I returned home early. I knew my cattle had plenty of food, but something forced me to go to the haypook. While there, in a few moments, I stood face to face with old George Galton. I was not frightened. We stood in the rain and talked for some time. In the course of the conversation, the old man gave me a message for his eldest son, and begged me to deliver it to him myself before the end of March. Immediately afterwards he disappeared, and then I was terribly afraid. A few weeks later, Shenix went all the way to Savage Cove and delivered the message given to him in so strange a fashion. A word of apology, and I close. In an early letter to you, I recall judging harshly a concoction called bruise. Experience here has taught me that our own delicacies meet with a similar fate at the hands of my present fellow countrymen. I offered Carmen on her arrival a cup of cocoa for Sunday supper. After one sniff, biddable and polite child though she was, I saw her surreptitiously pour the hemlock cup out of the open window behind her. May 23. Many miles over the hills from San Antoine lies one of the wildest and most beautiful harbors on this coast. Nestling within magnificently high rocks, the picturesque coloring of which is reflected in the quiet water beneath, lies the little village of Cremaillere. It is only a small settlement of tiny cottages beside the edge of the sea, but it has the unenviable reputation of being the worst village on the coast. In winter only three families live there, but in the summertime a number of men come for the fishing, and they with their wives and children exist in almost indescribable hovels. Some of these huts are just rough board affairs, about six feet by ten, and resemble cowsheds more than houses. If there is a window at all, it is merely a square piece of glass, not made to open, high up on one side of the wall. In some there is not even the pretense of a window, but in cases of severe sickness a hole is knocked through for ventilation on hearing of the near approach of the mission doctor. The walls have only one thickness of board with no lining, and the roofs are thatched with sods. There is no flooring whatever. Not one person in Cremaillere can either read or write. Yesterday there was a funeral held in one of the little villages, and the mingling of pathos and humor made one realize more vividly than ever how all the world's akin. A young mother had died, who could have been saved if her folk had realized the danger in time and sent for the doctor. She was lying in a rude board coffin in the bare kitchen. As space was at a premium, the casket had been placed on the top of the long box which serves as a residence for the family rooster and chickens. They kept popping their heads with their round, quick eyes out through the slats, and emitting startled crows and clucks at the visitors. The young woman was dressed in all her outdoor clothing. A cherished lace curtain sought to hide the rough, unplaned boards of the coffin, for it had been hewn from the forest the day before. The depth of her husband's grief was evidenced by the fact that he had spent his last and only two dollars in the purchase, at the Nameless Cove General Store, of the highly flowered hat which surmounted his wife's young, careworn but peaceful face as she lay at rest. 
I saw for the first time an old custom preserved on the coast. Before the coffin was closed, all the family passed by the head of the deceased and kissed the face of their loved one for the last time, while all the visitors followed and laid their hands reverently on the forehead. Only when the master of ceremonies, who was always specially appointed, had cried out in a sonorous voice, Any more? and met with no response, was the ceremony of closing the lid permitted. Surely the children are the one and only hope of this country. Through them we may trust to raise the moral standard of the generations to come, but it is going to be a very slow process to make any headway against the ignorance and absence of desire for better things which prevails so largely here. I must tell you of the latest addition to our family. On the first boat in the spring there arrived a family, brought by neighbors, to say what the mission could do for them. I think I have never seen a more forlorn sight than this group presented when they stepped from the steamer. There was the father, the mother is dead, an elderly half-witted cripple capable neither of caring for himself nor for his children, four boys of varying sizes, and a girl of fourteen in the last stages of tuberculosis. The family were nearly frozen, half-starved, and completely dazed at the hopelessness of their situation. The girl was admitted to the hospital where she has since died, and the youngest boy, Israel, we took into the home. Alas, we had only room for the one. Israel was at first much overawed by the standard of cleanliness required in this institution, and protested vigorously when we tried to put him into the bathtub. He explained to us that he never washed more than his face and hands at home, not even his neck and ears, the limitation of territory being strictly defined and scrupulously observed. June 20. Unlike last year, this summer promises to be hot, at least for this country. I have felt one great lack this year. You have to pass the long months of what would be lovely spring in England without a sign of a living blade of flower, though a few little songbirds did their best bravely to make it up to us. Already we are being driven almost crazy with the mosquitoes and black flies, songsters of no mean caliber, especially at night. In desperation our little ones yesterday succeeded in killing an unusually large specimen, and after burying it with great solemnity were heard singing round the grave in no uncheerful tones, Nearer, my God, to thee. I hate to think that these next few weeks will be the last I shall spend in this country and with these children. The North seems to weave over one a kind of spell and fascination all its own. I look back sometimes and smile that I should ever have felt the year long or dreary. It has passed so quickly that I can scarcely believe it already time to be thinking of you and England again. I may emulate the example of Mrs. Lott, but with the certainty that a similar fate to hers does not await me. I have just unpacked a barrel of clothing sent from home to the orphanage, and find to my disgust that it is almost entirely composed of muslin blouses and old ladies' bonnets. What am I to do with them? The blouses I can use as mosquito veiling, but these bonnets are not the kind our babies wear. I shall present one to Topsy, who will look adorable in it. You hint it is hard to get up interest in Labrador because we are neither heathen nor black. I can imagine your sewing circle of dear old ladies, perhaps they sent the bonnets, discussing the relative merits of working to send aeroplanes to the Arabs, bicycles to the Bedouins, comforters to the Chinese, jumpers to the Japanese, handkerchiefs to the Hottentots, hairnets to the Hindus, mouth-organs to the Mohammedans, pinafores to the Parsees pajamas to the Papuans, prayer-books to the Pygmies, sandwiches to the South Sea Islanders, or zithers to the Zulus. Just wait till I can talk to your dear old ladies. A few days ago we had a very narrow escape from fire. 
Indeed, it seemed for some time as if the whole of the mission would be wiped out. It was a half-holiday, and our boys had gone fishing to the Devil's Pond, a favorite spot of theirs about a mile away. Unfortunately, Noah was seized with the idea of lighting a fire by which to cook the trout, the matches having been stolen from my room. It had been dry for several days, there was quite a wind, and the fire, catching the furs, quickly got beyond the one required for culinary purposes. The boys first tried to smother it with their coats, but finding that of no avail ran home to give the alarm. By the time the men could get to the spot, the fire had spread so rapidly that attention had to be turned towards trying to save the houses. The doctor's house was the one most directly threatened at first, and we proceeded to strip it of all furniture, carrying everything to the foreshore to be ready to be taken off if necessary. The doctor was away on a medical call, and you can imagine my feelings when I expected every moment to see the northern light come round the point, the doctor's house in flames, and his household goods scattered to the winds. Then we dismantled this place, the children having been sent at the outset to a place of safety, and removed the patients from the hospital. Every man in the place was hard at work, and there were few of us who dared to hope that we should have a roof over our heads that night. Happily the wind suddenly dropped, the fire died down, and late that night we were able to return and endeavor to sort out babies and furniture. The goddess of disorder reigned supreme, and it was only after many weary hours that we were able to find beds for the babies and babies for the beds. And it was our boys who started the fire. I am covered with confusion every second when I stop to think of it, and wonder if this is not the psychological moment to make my exit from this mission. End of section 6 Recording by Sean Michael Hogan